Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. In case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 879. After a long time of anticipation, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and he has made his presence very much felt immediately, which has been received with joy by the common people and with anger by the Jewish leadership. And this morning, Jesus is going to assert his identity as the Son of God as he has uh, another showdown with the religious leaders in the temple. And so we're in Luke chapter 20, and we are going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, One day, as Jesus was teaching in the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So last week, Jesus finally arrived in Jerusalem in obvious fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And his disciples celebrated the arrival of the one true king. But Jesus grieved over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he drove out the, the uh, corrupt financial practices that had come to characterize the temple. He cleansed it. At the end of chapter 19, Luke told us that Jesus was teaching in the temple daily while the, the religious leaders tried to figure out a way to destroy him. And this sets the stage for a series of confrontations that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. And as we move into chapter 20, Luke zooms in on the first occasion. As Jesus is teaching the people and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the religious leaders come up and they demand to know by what authority Jesus does the things that he does and, and who gave him that authority. In other words, they're, they're basically saying, who do you think you are and where do you get off acting the way that you are? Right, what, what do you mean riding into town on a donkey and, and, and interrupting the business practices of the temple during Passover. And really, this is a, a power move, right? As the official leaders, official Jewish leaders, they are trying to establish that they are in charge and that Jesus should submit to their authority. Well, in verse 3, Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. And he says, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In other words, he's asking whether the ministry of John the Baptist was authorized by God 
or, or whether John was operating out of his own initiative. Or to say it another way, he's asking if John was truly sent from God or whether he was a false prophet. And to be clear, this isn't Jesus trying to avoid the question. It was a very common practice in formal disputes to answer a question with another question and, and place the burden on the other person to move the conversation forward. And we might think that this would be an easy question to answer, but in verse 5, we see that Jesus has actually pinned these religious leaders between a rock and a hard place. As they consider how to answer it, they realize that if they say John's ministry was given to him by God, then they're stuck, right? because John pointed people to Jesus. And so Jesus would simply say, why did you not believe him? But if they say that John's ministry was not from God, then they're risking their lives because they realize that all of the common people hold John to have been a true prophet, and they might stone them in, in protest. So after much thought, rather than answer the question, the leaders tell Jesus that they don't know. Right? They've been stumped. And in response, Jesus tells them that he will not answer their question about his authority. Right? If you aren't able to evaluate the source of John's authority then you don't need to concern yourselves about mine. And so at the end of round one, religious, zero, religious leaders zero, Jesus one. But of course, Jesus is going to answer the question in his own way, as we'll see being in verse nine. It says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son." Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And so as we pick up again here in verse 9, Jesus tells the crowd another parable to, to answer uh, who he is and to explain by what authority he does what he does. And in this parable, there is a man who plants a vineyard, and then he leases that field out to tenants who, who would be responsible for farming it for him. And this is actually a fairly common practice in the first century, a wealthy landowner would purchase a plot of land for farming, and then he would leave it in the charge of tenant farmers who would live off some of the crops and then would pass along a portion of, of the harvest or a portion of the, 
profits to the owner. Well, in verse 10, the time comes for the tenants to pay up. And so the owner sends a servant to to get what he is owed. But instead of paying, the tenants beat the servant and send him away empty-handed. So that was unexpected. But perhaps there was a miscommunication, or perhaps the tenants were just having a bad day. And so in verse 11, the owner sends another servant. But this time, the tenants beat the servant and humiliate him. They, They treat him shamefully in some way. And they send him back with nothing. So the situation is is beginning to escalate. And in verse 12, the owner sends yet another servant to collect what is rightfully his. But this time, the tenants wound the servant. They beat him within an inch of his life. And then they simply throw him out of the vineyard and leave him for dead. So at this point, it's obvious that these tenants have no intention of, of holding up their end of the agreement. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says to himself, if if I'm going to get control of this situation, then then maybe I better send my son, because surely they will respect him. In the ancient world, an adult son would carry the same authority as the father. And so for him to come would be just as if the father was there. The way you treat the son would, for all practical purposes, be the way that you treat the father. But when the son arrives and the tenants recognize that he is the heir, they determine that if they kill him, then then they will be able to take possession of the vineyard for themselves. Most likely they're making a faulty assumption that the son has come on the scene to take possession of the vineyard for himself because the father has died. And so the logic is that if the son is taken out of the equation, then there will no longer be a legal owner of the vineyard and they can file for possession themselves. And so in the greatest act of defiance yet, the tenants take the son outside the vineyard and they kill him. But of course, the father is still very much alive. And so in the second half of verse 15, Jesus asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The mistreating the servants would have been disrespectful, perhaps even frustrating, but to kill the son will bring the full measure of the father's wrath against these tenants in vengeance. He will destroy them, and then he will find new tenants who will obey his orders in order to replace them. Now, when it comes to interpreting this parable, the key to understanding it actually lies in the very first line, a man planted a vineyard. If you hear the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, then you immediately think Star Wars. If you hear that once upon a time there were three little pigs, you immediately think this is the tale of the three little pigs, and and you automatically know where this story is going. Well, if you're a Jew, and particularly a Jew in the first century, then when you hear the phrase, a man planted a vineyard, in your head you immediately think Isaiah 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord confronted the people of Israel for their unrepentant sin. And he compared the situation to a man who planted a vineyard and then did everything he could to cultivate it and provide it with everything it needed to to flourish, and yet it continuously bore bad fruit, which pointed to the, the reality of the people's unrepentant sin despite all of the Lord's blessings that he had given to them. And so in frustration, 
the man destroyed the vineyard, which pointed to the coming judgment of the exiles. And so here, Jesus takes that story, but he reworks it for his own purposes by adding some additional characters and adjusting the plot line. And so with this background in mind, it becomes fairly obvious that Jesus' parable here is serving as an overview of the history of Israel. And so again, the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard itself is the nation of Israel. That the tenants, the farmers, are the Jewish leaders who were given responsibility to lead the people to be faithful to the Lord, but who instead consistently led them into sin and idolatry. The servants represent the prophets who God sent repeatedly over the centuries to call the people to repentance and into a right relationship with him and who were rejected, often violently. And then that means that the son is Jesus. And the point, the point of this parable is that the climax of Israel's history is here, right? This, this very moment in the temple Uh, After rejecting messenger after messenger, the son is now standing in the vineyard, and it's time to decide. And so, not so subtly, Jesus is identifying himself as the son of God, the one who carries all of the authority of the father. And he is identifying these Jewish leaders as the wicked tenants who oppose him and who will face the judgment of God for their rebellion. Not only that, but Jesus refers to God giving the vineyard over to others, which is is yet another prediction of the coming inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. Now, when the leaders hear this parable, they they protest. They say, surely not. And, And I don't think that they are objecting to what Jesus says in the parable, as if to say, no, the owner can't kill the tenants that's, that's, that's wrong, because pretty much anybody, particularly in the ancient world, would agree with that outcome, including them. No, I think they're objecting to what Jesus is implying through the parable, which is that they are the tenants who are rejecting the Messiah and who are going to receive God's judgment as a result. All right, we see down in verse 19 that they realize that Jesus is talking about them. And so they're saying, no, that can't possibly be true. We would never reject the Messiah. And then things get really intense. In verse 17, Jesus says, or Luke says that Jesus looked directly at them. There's this long pause. And Jesus is not blinking. And he says to them, what then, and he asked them what they think Psalm 118.22 means when it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right, now, Psalm 118 is a psalm of a king who has been delivered from danger by God. And in verse 22, the king compares himself to a stone that was rejected by builders. Right, so if you want to take the imagery, you've got people who are, are building uh, a stone building and they come across this stone, and, and as they look at it, it just looks useless. Like it can't, it's not good for anything. So they throw it aside. And that's what the, the king imagines himself to be. Right? But, but again, the point is that God has taken this king, someone who is despised and rejected by human eyes, and, and he has used him to, as the very cornerstone, the, the, the most important part of a, of a large building. Meaning that this this king is someone who would not have been uh, 
esteemed highly by people, and yet God has chosen him to be king over his people and to be used in a mighty way. Now, interestingly, the disciples quoted from Psalm 118 last week, verse 26, as they cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see that just as Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that part of the psalm, so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of verse 22. And he says, no, actually, the Messiah being rejected by people before being vindicated by God is right there in the scriptures, and you are fulfilling it at this very moment. Not only that, but in verse 18, Jesus warns that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And again, there's an element of judgment directed at those who reject the Messiah. And this time, he's drawing from Daniel chapter 2. Right, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets a, a dream, a vision that the king has. And in this vision, he sees a stone that is cut out, not by human hands, but by God. And Daniel explains that this stone represents an eternal kingdom that will defeat every other kingdom that stands against it. And it's referring to the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And so here, Jesus is connecting the dots that the stone the builders rejected in Psalm 118 is the messianic stone from Daniel chapter 2. And the individual that both of those references allude to is the son of the vineyard owner, and he is that son. And so those who oppose him will receive complete and total judgment. Well, now the leaders are angrier than ever before. You see in verse 19 that they, Luke tells us they want to take him out right there on the spot. But again, they realize that the common people are not going to allow that to happen. So they are forced to take an alternate approach, which we'll look at when we come back again next week. But as we close, we can't miss the fact, or at least I don't think we should miss the fact, that, that Jesus reveals here that the leaders are going to kill him. All right, in the story, the tenants kill the son, and if Jesus is the son and the religious leaders are the tenants, then Jesus is acknowledging what is going to happen in due time, as he has already predicted several times. All right, but, but don't miss this. Even as he is speaking, the religious leaders in their hearts are looking for a way to destroy Jesus. And the irony of it all is that they are so blinded by their sin in this moment that they do not appreciate the fact that they are doing exactly what Jesus is telling them they're going to do. Right? They are proving him right, even as they want nothing more than to prove him wrong. And so we're reminded that God's word is true, and his plan will always come to pass. So in our passage this morning, Jesus squares off against the Jewish leadership, and he defeats them in a battle of wits, even as he asserts his identity as the Son of God. And as we consider the, the application, the implications of this text for our lives today, we need to realize that we face the same choice, the same decision, as the religious leaders and the crowd in the temple. And the question is, how will we respond to Jesus? Do you recognize who Jesus is. There's, there's all kinds of, of opinions out there in the world today about who Jesus is. Some people will say that he was just a, a really nice person or, or perhaps a good moral teacher. 
maybe even a, a prophet uh, of some kind. Uh, some people would say that, that he was crazy, that there's no other explanation for doing what he did. All right, some people insist that, that all religions are basically the same, and, and so as long as you're sincere in whatever it is you believe, then all roads ultimately lead to heaven in the end. And of course, in one sense, everyone is, is entitled to their own opinion, but for our purposes, we should recognize that in our text, Jesus does not see it that way. Right? And, and in this parable, Jesus doesn't put himself in the same category as anybody else. Only he is the son of the father. Only he has been sent to attend to the father's business. And how we respond to him is what will determine our eternal destiny. To be sure, there are lots of religious teachers out there, but there is only one Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. We're reminded here in our passage that Jesus has come to establish an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will ultimately do away with every other kingdom in this world. And while we are sinful people who do not deserve to enter that kingdom, Jesus offers it to us if we will turn from our sin and rebellion against him and submit our lives to him in faith. Again, Jesus is going to be killed, but in God's providence, his death is going to pay the penalty that we deserve to receive for our sin, so that if we trust in what he has done for us, we can be forgiven and reconciled to him. And from that point, when we come to faith in Jesus, our lives are to be characterized by obedience to Jesus. Because again, he has all authority. All right, the second half of the Great Commission calls us to make disciples by teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so do you recognize who Jesus is? It is your life characterized by obedience to Jesus. Or are there, there areas of your lives that you're trying to, to hold on to for your own purposes? Friends, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he has all authority over our lives. And so this morning, I pray that we will recognize Jesus for who he is and submit our lives to him in faith and obedience. Let's pray together.